Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Timothy Atkinson. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist in pain management at the VA Tennessee Valley Healthcare System near Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Suzanne Nesbitt, clinical pharmacy specialist in pain management at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and Dr. Chris Herndon, professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville in Edwardsville, Illinois. We are faculty for an educational initiative titled Safely Managing Our Patients' Pain. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS Program Companies. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at ashpadvantage.com forward slash REMS. Thank you for joining us today, and let's get started. All right, guys, so our first question, let's get right to it. We've got a lot to cover today. The FDA's Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, educational blueprint for healthcare providers involved in the treatment and monitoring of patients with pain was released in September of 2018, which is what our educational program is based on. So let's take a second and provide some feedback. What are a few of the strengths of this document and this approach? We'll start with you, Dr. Herndon. Well, one thing that I really like is it ensures that we are at least covering some of the core concepts that really go into trying to decide what type of modalities treatment-wise we may have to offer patients, whether it be acute or chronic pain. I really like that they emphasize the pathogenesis of pain and the assessment. I think those things are incredibly important to trying to come up with a holistic treatment plan. And I also like that they carve out some of the individual things that may be a little bit nuanced when clinicians try to approach managing them, such as methadone, some of the medications that we might use for opioid use disorder, and how they may play a role in the care of a patient with pain. Additionally, I think those are really good points. Dr. Herndon, I think additionally, some of the changes that came about in the 2018 update, I really appreciate the FDA trying to expand the content. And by that, I mean, prior to that, the blueprint and the REMS were just focused on the extended release and long-acting opiates, ERLA. But with the 2018, they expanded to include all opiates. And Chris is absolutely right. It really focuses on the fundamentals but also it's really targeting all healthcare professionals. So that's important because as we care for our patients, this is often really a team sport and it's really all healthcare professionals involved. And so really focusing the education for all is important. And then they started to add information and content related to addiction, which is a good start, but may lead us into our next question. Those are both really good comments. Adding to that, I would say that what impressed me about the blueprint is it's very comprehensive. It covers a lot of topics. It's a very balanced approach. You know, you're not seeing any one side, either for or against, but it's trying to present kind of all sides. 
And as you said, Suzanne, the, just the interdisciplinary nature of it, it covers everything from assessment to medications, to procedures, to complementary and alternative medicine modalities, and just alternative approaches. And I think that that's a really strong point because that's it's not just one thing that's going to get it done oftentimes in, in the pain universe. So well, that brings us right into our next question, which is in this same blueprint, what would be the areas for improvement if we were looking at it? After all, this was 2018 when this was done. What do you think, Dr. Nesbitt? We'll start with you. Right. So, you know, with, with positive, sometimes there's continued opportunities for growth and, and improvement. So, as I mentioned, they started to add content on addiction and it's pretty limited, but I think more and more of us are involved in the care of patients with addiction and the intersection of complex pain conditions and patients with OUD or substance use disorder. So I think expanding that area would be helpful. And even since 2018, I think we're much more aware of stigmatizing language that we use within our medical vernacular. And quite frankly, some of that stigmatizing language is in the blueprint. And so it would behoove FDA to, to look at that and maybe look at the words matter document and, and really try to address that language. So those are kind of top of mind thoughts for improvement. And I really agree with what you said. I have a real mixed opinion of addiction always following any discussion of pain management. It seems like we've really gone down that road over the last four or five years. And I get it. I mean, we made our bed. Now we need to sleep in it. And I understand that. But I guess it just is, it's concerning to me as an educator, as I'm sure it is to both of you, that those are always in the same breath. And I think it also, that has its own stigmatizing effects on the way we look at these patients, whether we mean to or not. And when we look at some of these things like, okay, you're in over your head, when should you refer to a pain specialist? And I, th I think that if I had somebody at the FDA that was actually interested in what I had to say, I think that would be one of the things I might mention is it's not the pain specialist managing these medicines any longer. And really, I think that gives a lot of our primary care prescribers, pharmacists, nurses, whoever it is that is in charge of monitoring or managing these medicines, somewhat of a false passing of the chip, so to speak, that, okay, we're going to give you just enough meds to get you to your pain specialist appointment. But in my area, they're not the ones managing any of the medicines. So I think that that potentially needs to be somewhat relooked at as they consider redrafting these. Again, really good points. There's so much in here. If I had to say there was one negative, it's, it's oftentimes that there's not enough time to cover everything and the type of program that we can put on whether it's two hours or three hours, oftentimes we are left with covering something that is really a comprehensive topic that could be a program in its own right in a very limited amount of time. And I know that that's probably unavoidable because we need to put out a comprehensive approach, but that does make this process certainly more challenging. Also, what to emphasize, what not to emphasize. And I would just say that the opioid crisis itself has changed since 2018. We're still concerned about opioids and overdose and the crisis and everything, but now we're also concerned about taking people off of opioids and some of the consequences of that, among other things. New warnings on opioids to that effect since that time. So there's a number of things. 
And as we get ready for the release of the new CDC guidelines and having seen the drafts for that, the tone has shifted, I think, across the entire crisis. And, and that really kind of leads us into our next question, which is, has the opioid crisis changed since the blueprint was released in 2018? And how so? Now, there's, a, there's probably a lot to discuss here, but what comes to mind for you, Dr. Herndon? Well, I think most people listening, as both of you would agree, that the opioid crisis has really shifted from that of prescription opioid issue over to in a, medications that have been, I'm trying, after Dr. Nesbitt had mentioned some of the stigmatizing language, I'm trying to incorporate her thoughts. <laughs> but I know that these terms aren't really appropriate any longer, but illicit fentanyl, illicit heroin, some of the fentanyl analogs, I really are driving the problems that we're seeing. I think the other things that have changed with the opioid crisis is that I think, again, this might not be agreed upon, but I think that our overzealous attempts to reduce opioid prescribing, where we have somebody in healthcare medically managing these agents to pulling back, I think has helped actually contribute to some of the, the rises in opioid overdoses that we're seeing with fentanyl, heroin, and some of these other agents. And I think that's a big issue. So, and you mentioned the new draft guidelines. I'm really excited to see they've kind of stepped back a little bit from some of these line in the sand, morphine milligram equivalent numbers. I think that's going to help. And I think that the CDC coming out and, and putting out some statements that, hey, look, these documents were never meant to be, I hate to use the term weaponized, but, you know, legislated and, and incorporated into policies of corporations and clinics and all of that thing. I think that the rubber band got stretched a little too far and it got let go and kind of snapped us in the behind, if you know what I mean. Am I allowed to say that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think that's stigmatizing. <laughs> well, as usual, I, I concur with your thoughts. And, and then as well as the opiate crisis changing in terms of what substances were focused on. And then we had a worldwide pandemic on top of it, which, of course, we saw horrible numbers approaching 100,000 deaths during the height of the pandemic because access to care just was really challenging. And so even patients that were looking for treatment, our regulatory atmosphere is such, for example, you have to have a physical, you have to be in person for your intake appointment. And that wasn't happening during COVID. So patients who were seeking care for their opioid use disorder, there was a challenge in providing that. And access to treatment for pain management was also challenging to Chris's point, there are less and less providers willing to manage patients on opiates. And they agree the, the rubber band, the pendulum, whatever you want to call it, we, we went too far one way. And now it seems to have gone the other way, where guidelines meant to be guidelines became regulatory and quality metrics. And I agree. It's fantastic that the CDC might be lessening that tone and kind of have a kinder, gentler approach, but it's going to take us some time to unwind from that because CMS, N2F, there are metrics that are in place 
that have consequences for health systems if they're not met. And a lot of them are really anchored in those 2016 CDC guidelines, MME cutoffs, that it'll take us a while to come back from that and return to rational opiate therapy where appropriate in the right patient with the right goals. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with both of you. The, the crisis has changed. There were a lot of unintended consequences from those cutoffs. You know, a lot of metrics that were developed by benefit management organizations, payers that were strictly implemented. You know, really, even our state governments were looking for things that they could operationalize and help them with this problem. And they were quickly adopted and rigidly so. But there's always a delay in data. And it wasn't until after this blueprint was released that we began to see the data for suicides and overdoses related to people that were forcibly tapered or discontinued from their opioids by providers. That data that's now coming out is fairly alarming and maybe just as significant as the, the rate of death in the opioid crisis itself. There's a number of very concerning things there. To your point, Chris, about illicit fentanyl use and the crisis itself having changed where the majority of overdoses. Has there ever been a time where it's been more dangerous to be a recreational drug user in this country? I mean, I can't imagine that there ever has. And that's really scary. When we're cutting people off of opioids and we know that they're going into that environment and they're not coping with things very well, it introduces a whole different layer of ethics into the patient care conundrum, I think. So... I almost wonder, I don't know if you all use these fentanyl test strips that a lot of the harm reduction folks are using, but I mean, if you're going to taper and remove a patient from their prescription opioids, I feel it should be standard of care that you provide those to these patients because that's what we're seeing is a lot of them think that they're getting one thing and they're getting something completely different. I'm sorry, Tim, to, to jump in as you were trying to segue. No, I think that's a great point. It's been incumbent on a lot of us to make sure that fentanyl is added to routine screening tests at a lot of different care levels because you never know what someone is taking. And if they're getting it from another source, they may not know what they're getting. So very valid point. All right. Well, our next question, what are some of the challenges in providing a comprehensive pain education like this one as outlined in the blueprint in a time efficient manner? Pretty difficult to do. What are your thoughts, Dr. Nesbitt? Well, you know, I, I think we've already mentioned some of the challenges. There's a lot of good fundamental information, which is fantastic, but it almost becomes difficult to deliver. It is difficult to deliver in one session. And it and it really seems to fit better into a series in some fashion with different formats, you know, people like to learn in different ways, visual learners, auditory learners, you know, podcasts like we're doing today. So how can we get the content and the initial content out there and then have the opportunity to really talk with our participants, which time is limited with the content we have to go over to really engage with cases. Cause I think that's when it really resonates with folks when you can go through a case or they can present patients that they've encountered and really talk about those complex things and the nuances 
of pain management and managing patients on opiates that right now in, in the current um, amount of content is, is really challenging to do. I know I'm copping out by asking a question instead of putting my two cents in, but old trick, right? But what do you all feel about the mandatory education requirements that have put been put in place by some licensing boards in terms of getting your license renewed or DEA registration in some in some areas. To my knowledge, the DEA has not done that, but some state licensing boards have. Do you all feel that that helps or is it is it just check in a box? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Maryland, so providers that want a dangerous drug, whatever it's called, distribution license, not the DEA, you're right, on the state level, must have two hours of pain management, CE, continuing education, at the, before the, their next renewal. And in some respects, some people are just looking like for NECE, what's quick and dirty that I can do to check the box. But within our own health system, we've tried to take some of the things that that we have used in other forums and package it into, hey, providers within our own health system, if you participate in this education, it serves our patients and kind of what we're doing from an opiate stewardship perspective, and it satisfies your two hours. So we're trying to kind of use that as our advantage to get in front of providers. So it can be helpful. I think a lot of times, though, unfortunately, it's a let's get something so we can check the box. Kim, do you think ASHP would fund a CE cruise to do this education? (laughs) (laughs) Only if we can sign up. That's a great idea. Yeah, sign me up right now. I'm good for that. I think it's a it's a really interesting question that you pose. How much enforcement should be required for this type of education? You know, there's there is a lot of debate on that as far as if you're going to have a license to prescribe and you're going to be managing these patients, should there not be some periodic educational, continuing educational requirement to maintain that license? And I think that that's reasonable. But at the same time, anytime you, you compel someone to get education in a certain area, you do tend to see the results and the quality of that tend to go down. So I don't know that there's a great answer to that because I'm not sure that it would get done if it wasn't required. So let's talk about the, the format of delivery of the opioid REMS programs. You mentioned earlier, Suzanne, just about how the pandemic has changed us and how we've all switched over more to these webinar formats everything's really gone virtual, right? But do you feel like that's as effective as the in-person CEs where there's less distractions? What are your thoughts? Chris, we'll go ahead and start with you. Ooh, that's a tough call. I think that is it is really hard to get people's undivided attention when they're on these webinar type situations. And it's really hard to get them to be actively engaged, especially if it's with a smaller crew. I don't have a strong sense one way or the other, which one's more effective. I will tell you that I really think that they could make a big difference in the way these are delivered if we could take a hybrid of the content in the blueprint and incorporate it with some of these echo style training centers that are that are around the country where you know you get a brief snippet of content and then there's some case discussion and there's some opportunity for panel discussion but the content portion is actually very short and I, I think that might be something worth looking at 
I love that idea, Chris. We're trying to stand up a Project Echo here within our health system to help our providers manage patients with complex pain. And I totally agree with that concept. And, you know, virtually, so the positive, you know, we had over 700 pharmacists on our first webinar, which was fantastic. I don't know that we would have had that many people. Now, I don't know if they were all paying attention for the entire two hours to Chris's point. I would like to think that they were because we're so captivating, but we don't know. (laughs) But would we get that many people in a live session? Maybe if it was connected to the mid-year meeting, for example, but then there's a lot of competing interests there. I think what would be kind of maybe the best of both worlds is is the Project Echo model, like you mentioned, didactic and real interaction, and maybe some breakout rooms, you know, if you remain virtually, and just trying to engage people a little bit more on, again, either real patient cases, or what are they seeing in their areas of practice that they're really struggling with, and have some group think on that. I really love that concept. You know, instead of trying to cram all of the the blueprints content into one, you know, session, regardless of whether it's two or three hours, dividing that up across the year, year and, and separate installments where you can cover things in more detail. You can talk through some different case scenarios and get more of a, a panel and interactive style. That would be a pretty compelling format. So that's a great idea. Let's switch to something maybe a little bit more controversial just for fun. Abuse deterrent formulations of opioids have been controversial since OxyContin was reformulated in 2012. Do you think that this is the future of opioid medications or simply a marketing strategy? Suzanne, we'll start with you. Oh, goodness. All right. Um, My cynical side is going to come out. So here are the challenges, right? I don't think there's compelling evidence and you both can certainly correct me if there's something more recent. I don't think there's compelling evidence that the abuse deterrent formulations really decrease any aberrant behavior or misuse, et cetera, in the long run. The costs are an issue. And more and more in clinic, I'm seeing patients who are stabilized on one particular product, but now the insurers are dictating that they will, the payers, that they will only cover abuse deterrent formulations. And so then we have to convert everyone, a very stable patient, even in in my palliative care clinic, where these are, in my particular clinic, they are all patients with a diagnosis of cancer. And so we're rotating patients just because of their insurance and that only the abuse deterrent is covered. I have a difficult time with that. Uh, You know, it goes back to the same thing as we've taken a good idea and really kind of maybe gone too far or to continue the rubber band, stretched it a little bit too far in that they're trying to do something, but not really individualizing it to a patient or what is meaningful and helpful to the patient. Chris, do you have a different thought? (laughs) I'm pleading the fifth. (laughs) You know, the thing that bothers me is the misconception that these abuse deterrent formulations somehow reduce the risk of 
problematic drug taking behavior. And did you guys used to go to Chuck E. Cheese when you were a kid? Remember that game Whack-A-Mole where you were trying to pop the thing and then another one would pop up somewhere else. And I kind of feel like that's, you know, at least in my mind, what, what we're basically dealing with. I mean, it, if, if you are exposed to an opioid and you are at risk for an unhealthy relationship with that substance, if it's going to get into your, your system, it's going to get in your system, regardless of how you ingest it or administer it. I think that potentially there's some good benefit from the street value or the diversion standpoint of these medications, which was a big issue 10 years ago, but I think that ship has sailed at this point. And I try to avoid Chuck E. Cheese at all costs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that place will get you every time. I have very mixed feelings on this topic because it really only helps for people that are going to intentionally, uh, like, as you said, divert or abuse it, you know, crushing, trying to put it into solution, inject it, you know, something along those lines, not the standard routes of oral misuse that we worry about with our pain patients. And if you take cost out of the equation, why wouldn't you give somebody something that was more abuse deterrent compared to an alternative if we weren't, if costs weren't an issue? And eventually, I think we will get to that point. It's not possible ever why these things are under patent, but I do think that that is the future, whether we're talking about an alternative uh, method of delivery or it continues to be you know, physical and chemical barriers to use. I had an interesting opportunity a few years ago to see the raw data on the post-marketing studies of OxyContin from Purdue before the report went to the FDA. And what's surprising is that nobody really knows how to do the post-marketing studies on these things. You know, the FDA meets with the manufacturers. They try to figure out the best way to do it. The data is, is difficult to measure in those, in those patients. And, you know, because of that, the, the data is not terribly compelling. So I think it will be interesting as, as future studies are designed to get a better impact. But overall, we're going to need to see that there is, you know, some reduction in intentional abuse. Um, because if we're just talking about misuse, it's always going to be on us clinicians to weed out um, people that, you know, are using it inappropriately. That's why we do all the other risk mitigation strategies. So very mixed opinion on this one, but I do, I do see that being a, a continuous part of the mitigation strategy, you know, moving forward if costs weren't an issue. So just my two cents. I don't think we have time for a lot of other questions, but let's just do one last thing that I think continues to crop up all the time. And that is the philosophy of care. One of the things that I like about the blueprint is it talks about acute and chronic pain. Okay. Just different kinds of pain. Then there's cancer pain, but does this focus on different kinds of pain sometimes impact stigma around pain and around the medications? And I guess a good example of that would be how often have we seen the CDC guidelines be applied to cancer patients, for example, where they were never intended to be applied? What are some of your thoughts on the stigma there? I come back to where we should be along the continuum, acute pain, chronic pain, cancer pain. And if we focus on opiates, for example, the philosophy of care is once we assess the patient and we try to identify the etiology of the patient's pain, we should be individualizing that care for what's going on with the patient and what makes sense in that patient. Using guidelines 
using pharmacogenomic data if we have it, and really what's important to the patient in those shared decision-making opportunities. And then we should have a goal, like our regimen, we're hoping we do this, we improve your ADLs, et cetera. We, we don't invite more side effects. And really, if we have appropriate goals for the care of our patients with whatever pain they're experiencing, and we have realistic expectations from the patient, then I think we get to a better place. I think, you know, I think Chris said we took our eye off the ball, um, so to speak. But I think we lost track of what were our goals of, of therapy in our patients with pain. And we, when we don't meet those goals, how we respond to that and what we do next is really important. And that philosophy is we have to care for the patient's in the way that's best for them and in the way that includes them in that shared decision-making in a very realistic way. I agree wholeheartedly. And I don't think, for me, I don't think it's a philosophy of care that changes. I think, unfortunately, what winds up happening is, is that what is available to us from an integrative pain management standpoint changes due to third-party payer coverage. If I can get all of the non-farm and non-opioid modalities covered just as easily for an acute or a chronic non-cancer pain patient as I could for a patient who unfortunately has a malignancy, I think that there'd be a lot of different situations currently. I don't know if you all see that where you're at, but that's a big deal for us. Absolutely. And, you know, I think too, we, we, as a society in the U.S., there was this perception of, uh, and, and I still hear it for some patients, I have pain, you, there are medications, you should be able to alleviate my pain. And unfortunately, sometimes that is not easy. And we don't have all the medications that could adequately control everyone's pain. So I hope with the opioid crisis, I, you know, I, I hear patients being more thoughtful and engaging of, okay, if we start an opiate, what should I expect from that? So I hope that's changing because previously it was a kind of, you need to treat my pain with whatever you have available. So again, I think, I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful with our patients and realistic. No question. You know, we need individualized care. We do need more of an integrative approach and access to interdisciplinary services. No question about that. I can't help but also think that, you know, something that I talk to my my residents and trainees often about is this gentleman has suddenly been diagnosed with cancer and now his pain is somehow knowable and we need to treat it. But yet now, on the other hand, we have this other gentleman who comes into clinic who was injured in service to his country and his back is held together by rods and screws. And yet he is not a candidate for opioids and, you know, perception may be that, you know, pseudo addiction or drug seeking or, or whatever. And that concerns me. I like that concept of getting back to individualized care, seeing what the individual is going through. Yes, of course, we should be emphasizing all of the other therapies and, and making sure that the expectations for medication management is realistic, that it's not going to take away all of their pain. But I do think sometimes we get caught in those silos of, oh, well, now you have cancer. So, you know, the floodgates are open and we can get you whatever you need. So 
that is something that I do still find deeply concerning and I think is fairly pervasive across pain management settings. All right. Well, that is all the time that we have. I want to thank Dr. Nesbitt and Dr. Herndon for joining us today. Don't forget to check out the initiative website, ashpadvantage.com forward slash REMS. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.